The following leadoff was recorded on November 4th, 2023 at the Phoenix Marxist School. This means that a few numbers will be outdated and recent developments left out. Since this recording, the attack on Gaza has only escalated, with conservative estimates being over 25,000 Palestinians killed. Israeli state figures have indicated that they don't intend on slowing down and that this one-sided assault could go on for months. Further, on the morning of January 12th, 2024, the United States and the United Kingdom, with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands launched a series of cruise missile and airstrikes against Yemen for the Houthi blockade at the Red Sea. The attack on Yemen has further inflamed the anger of the masses in every country of the region. This angry mood was sufficiently inflamed even before this, but now the whole region is a huge powder keg waiting to explode. There's no solution to the conflict on a capitalist basis because the Israeli state is driven by the material needs of imperialism. Communists call for intifada until victory. By this this we mean the revolutionary mobilization of the Palestinian masses, along with the workers of the entire region, to establish a socialist federation of the Middle East. As for workers in the United States, we must organize a mass communist party in order to oppose U.S. imperialism, which is the state of Israel's greatest patron. We must sink roots into organized labor so that we can shut down arms manufacturers, shipping, and other industries through class-based methods, mass demonstrations, strikes, and general strikes. With all that being clarified, here's the leadoff by John Peterson. Now, I was originally, before four weeks ago today, I was supposed to be speaking about philosophy, Marxist philosophy, and counterposing that to bourgeois philosophy of, of both the, the liberal and the, the conservative variety. <clears throat> and though it might seem that this topic, Israel-Palestine, is unrelated to that, uh, it's, it's actually all deeply interconnected. That's because the class basis for bourgeois ideology, for the bourgeois world outlook, is the same as, uh, as the basis for its actions in the real world. And that's, of course, the defense of capitalist property relations, it's the uh, defense of the market, economy, of the nation state, and political liberty and equality in the abstract without really attending to the question of genuine equality of life in, in practice. Um, so just to get a feel for the audience, I think I know the answer, but how many of you stand unconditionally with the Palestinians in the face of what's going on today? Yeah? Okay. And how many of you stand unconditionally with Israel and think that what's happening right now is a proportionate response? Okay, I was hoping there'd be at least a couple, a couple people. I guess I'll ask, is there anybody here that isn't sure which side to stand on? Well, if you didn't agree with everybody else in this room, I would hope to convince those people with, with arguments, with facts, with figures uh, that, uh, you know, why, you know, explain why the IMT stands unequivocally with the Palestinian people, why we call for intifada until victory, and what we mean by that, and why there's no solution to this nightmare within the limits of capitalism. What, what we're seeing these last few weeks, it's an object lesson in how historical necessity is expressed through accident. The events of October 7th were like a giant boulder just dumped into a pond that was already quite turbulent and stormy, and it's had a huge effect on mass consciousness. <clears throat> on that single day, 75 years 75 plus years of murder, of stolen land, of humiliation, of state terrorism, and of mass resistance were summarized in, in an unprecedented 24-hour period. 
And whether we like it or not, this is the new normality. This is the world we live in. It's a world of sharp and sudden changes, of war, of revolution, and counter-revolution. And we either get to come to grips with that and understand it and analyze it and then actually do something about it, or we're just going to be smacked around by events and driven to confusion and demoralization like so many other people that I think we interact with on a daily basis. <clears throat> now, the aftershocks of Israel's pulverization of Gaza are going to be felt far and wide, and it has huge implications for basically everything in the world, from the economy to world relations, American politics, the 2024 elections, and of course, our work as communists. It's raised the indignations of millions of people. I mean, probably billions of people around the world, a majority of whom live in very similar conditions to the Palestinians, and they therefore are in organic solidarity with what's happening to people who are basically just like them. What's, what's happening there, you know, I mean, any basic human sympathy that people might have felt after the initial Hamas attack and the killing of, of, of civilians, which, which is a fact, has turned into its opposite now. It's turned into its opposite because it's not an eye for an eye, it's multiple heads for an eye. It's an entire population for an eye. And the transformation of the open prison of Gaza into what some Gazans are now calling an open grave with blood, the blood of thousands literally running through the rubble-filled streets, has affected people emotionally in a way that, 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 that I haven't really seen much in my entire life. Well over, you know, I think, I don't even, you lose track, right? I mean, I think it's about 3,700 Palestinian children have been murdered by airstrikes in the last few weeks, and thousands more are going to meet the same fate in, in the next period. Now, to put that into context, into a per capita context, in the United States, in the United States, based on our population, that's the equivalent of around 600,000 children killed in just a four-week period. Can you even imagine such a thing? Can you imagine that? What, what, what that would mean to this population? And these monsters call these kids human shields and terrorists, collateral damage, human animals, or even inhuman animals. The population of Gaza, it's more than twice the size of Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. And yet all these people are, are packed into an area that's about 18 times smaller. And they're being bombed and starved to death. And what may be even worse, they don't even have access to clean water. They have to drink dirty water or seawater just to survive in a, in a desert, basically. I mean, you, you know, can you imagine those conditions here? And, you know, and never mind extravagant luxuries like electricity or fuel or toilet paper or a sewage system. There isn't even basic medical care for the elderly, for the pregnant, for newborns. There's 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza right now. Uh, nor is there anything for the thousands of casualties. We hear the death toll, but there's thousands more on top of that who are injured, have their, have their arm blown off or have their leg blown off, and, and there's no medical care for these people. Basic preventable diseases like cholera might kill more people than Israeli-American bombs by the time this is all, all finished. And they call this self-defense. Now, self-defense to me would mean repelling the Hamas attack on October 7th as it was happening, 
right? Uh, instead, the almighty Israeli security forces, they were overwhelmed, they were surprised, they were confused, they were totally unprepared. <clears throat> now, I understand Arizona is, is basically a stand-your-ground state, right? So if someone invades your home, you have a right to shoot them, right? If they come into your house, you can shoot them. But can you follow them back to their neighborhood with automatic weapons and RPGs and blow up their extended family and their neighbors and their kids and their cousins? I mean, that, 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 that's what passes for self-defense in, uh, in Israel these days. So is it not clear which side is oppressed and which side is doing the oppressing? Is it not clear who are the victims and who are the perpetrators? Uh, before this siege began, to add to the misery, I mean, something like 500 semi-trucks every single day would pass from Egypt through the Rafah crossing to bring essential supplies and food to, to this area. Now, the liberal media applauds you know, Biden when they get 20 trucks in, 20 trucks. I mean, they need thousands of times more that to meet the needs of, of that population. <clears throat> and of course, let's not forget the thousands of Palestinians killed before October 7th, during this so-called peace. I mean, they've been at peace for the last few years, and yet thousands of Gazans and people in the West Bank have been killed. Now, the bottom line is, as long as there are classes, there can be no peace. That's, that's the reality. So that's why I think it's an exaggeration, it's a stretch to even call this a war. This isn't a, this isn't a war. This isn't a, a fight between relatively equal forces where the skill of the generals and the soldiers and you know, the tactics and all that determine the outcome. This is uh, you know, an almost entirely one-sided campaign of savage punishment and revenge against a mostly defenseless population. And this is what we mean, what communists mean when we say that capitalism is horror without end. This is why we say that the choice facing humanity is socialism or barbarism. That is barbarism now in the 21st century that we're seeing. And of course, all of this has full support of Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, and the whole of US imperialism. You know, right after coming into power, Biden's administration approved sending $735 million of precision-guided weapons to Israel, and nobody in Congress had any, any uh, you know, objections to this, despite the fact that they knew those weapons were going to be used to kill Palestinians. So don't tell me that this guy doesn't have blood on his hands. Now they want to send 14.3 billion more dollars. Billion! That was just like 700 million. Now they want to send 14 billion dollars, which he calls a smart investment that's going to pay dividends. This is how these people calculate the world. And it's no surprise that that wretched liberal reformist AOC, have you heard of her? Uh, she has again fallen into line following her master's call and also supports sending this aid to Israel. I mean, tell me, is that how socialists in Congress are supposed to be conducting themselves? Is that how we would conduct ourselves if we had one of our comrades in Congress? Can you imagine how different that would be compared to that? And let's not forget, of course, going back to the hypocrisy of the United States, the tens of thousands of Jewish people who were turned back when they tried to get into the United States in the 1930s and 40s to escape Nazi Europe, and they were turned away and lots of them ended up in concentration camps. That was when that great liberal hero, FDR, was in power. So no wonder so many people are pissed off. They're fed up with the lies, with the hypocrisy, with this obvious double standard, especially if you compare it to the last couple of years with what's going on, what's been going on in Ukraine. 
How come the Ukrainians have the right to resist the foreign invasion and occupation, but the Palestinians don't? How come they get armed and, and the Palestinians don't? And of course, it comes down to the specific interests of the imperialists. U.S. imperialism opposes Russian imperialism, and it supports Israeli imperialism. It's as simple as that. Uh, violence is justified when it serves the interests of the rich and powerful, but it's reprehensible if the, if the slaves dare to fight back. So it's not about consistency, it's not about morality, it's about money, and it's about land, and it's political power, and spheres of influence. And of course, things are only, it's, you know, the worst is yet to come now that the ground offensive has begun. <clears throat> and let's not forget that there's two aircraft carrier groups off the coast of Gaza with thousands of troops, uh, warplanes, bombers, helicopters, missiles, I mean, uh, th they're there to basically allow Israel to do what they're doing to the people of Gaza. So no wonder we've seen graffiti in Brooklyn that says overthrow genocide Joe, uh, which is something you didn't see a couple of years ago, right? When he, when this, when this lesser evil had to be elected to stop, you know, Mr. Donald Trump. And of course, there's the West Bank, there's Southern Lebanon, there's Syria, Jordan, Iran, even Egypt for that matter when it comes to possible new fronts of the war or mass destabilization because you have you know, mass protests against the, the role that those regimes are playing in, in allowing this to happen. Many of those countries, they have a significant Palestinian populations, people that have lived in refugee camps their entire lives. People live and die their entire lives in those camps. According to the United Nations, there's 5.9, well, up until recently, 5.9 million Palestinian refugees worldwide, most of them descendants of the 1948 uh, exiles, the generation that, that, led, that left uh, uh, during the Nakba. And let's not forget that along with those refugees, within Israel itself, there's about 2 million Palestinians who live in Israel. They're descendants of those who survived the Nakba within Israel, and most of them identify as Arabs or Palestinians, even if they have Israeli citizenship. And they make up about 20% of the population. And all of these people, in Israel, outside of Israel, outside of Palestine, they have some kind of connection to Gaza, to the West Bank, uh, or, you know, or, or to people that live in, in these, all these camps. All, there's dozens of these camps all around the Middle East. So you'd better believe that the specter of the Arab Spring, which we saw in 2011, which is a magnificent movement, if you haven't studied that or watched movies about that, 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 that specter is haunting every one of those rotten regimes, those pro-imperialist or imperialist regimes across, across the Middle East. And they're worried that this is going to spark another regional conflagration. Now, as for Israel... A majority of the population might be at least somewhat united for the moment, but there are deep divisions in that society, both at the ruling class level and in society generally, and those divisions are along class lines. There's deep class polarization in Israel. Um, there's exploiters and exploited. There's homelessness. There's unemployment. There's poverty. There's levels of inequality that are basically equal to what we have here in the United States. There's also uh, been really important strikes in Israel, we shouldn't forget that, and movements in solidarity with the Palestinians within Israel in the past. There's also lots of racism in Israel against, uh, you know, against the Israeli Arabs, against the, the Sephardic population. These are Jews of non-European descent uh, who are the, uh, the, the Ashkenazi, as well as immigrants that they're bringing in from all over the world, just like here, to, to serve as cheap labor. So we shouldn't think that Netanyahu 
has an absolutely iron grip on everything. In fact, the majority of Israelis want him out. As soon as this is all over, they want to get rid of this guy because everything eventually turns into its opposite. Now, <coughs> we've come under attack for using the slogan, Intifada until victory. In fact, the comrades in Bellingham, who are trying to organize their school, their, the next Marxist school in our series, have been under severe attack for, for using, that, uh, using that slogan. And I'm, I'm sure you've read in the bulletins and on the website uh, the attacks the comrades have, have suffered in other parts of the world. For example, in Britain, some pretty, some pretty serious attacks. Now, our class enemies, they want to confuse people about what the real meaning of the word intifada is, uh, which in Arabic simply means to shake off. It's a shaky, to shake things off, right? And what are they shaking off? Well, it's when a mass upsurge seeks to, to get rid of the status quo and get rid of all oppressors and all exploiters, whether they're Israeli or Arab or Persian or American or Jewish or Muslim or Christian or anything else. You, you want to get these people off your back. That's what it means. It's not about individual terrorism or, or driving the Jews into the sea. That's not what Marxists mean by it. It's not about depriving anybody of the right to security, to religious freedom, to a good job, to housing, to healthcare, to education. And it's certainly not about, quote, violent attacks against Israeli civilian targets, which is what our comrades in Bellingham were accused of, of supporting. Now, when we talk about Intifada, we're talking about the Arab Spring. We're talking about the George Floyd uprising. That's precisely the kind of thing we have in mind. And that's what they're really afraid of, because they know that any time that the masses move into action, things can get out of control, and their grip on power can be under threat. <clears throat> that's why, you know, along with all the crocodile tears for Gaza, there, there's a blatant assault on basic democratic rights all around the world intended to limit solidarity with Palestine and to silence any criticism of the complicity of the West in, in the ongoing massacre. Demonstrations have been banned. Student organizations have been dissolved. Thankfully, ASU hasn't gotten to us yet. Um, and meeting rooms... Uh, bookings have been canceled. We actually, the comrades locally, had to find a backup room just in case uh, th this didn't work out. So, <clears throat> so now the big thing, though, I think, is that supporters of Palestine, whether you're a student club or whether you're just, uh, you know, at the grocery store, they've been you're you're branded a supporter of Hamas or an anti-Semite, and we unequivocally reject any and all accusations of anti-Semitism or support for individual terror and the murder of civilians. That's a total lie. You know, let's be crystal clear. Our position on what's going on in Palestine has nothing to do with being against Jewish people in general or Judaism or as a religion or anything. Being anti-Zionist, anti-Israeli state, and anti-occupation is not the same thing as being anti-Semitic. And ironically, a lot of the Zionists in Congress who are supporting Israel to the hilt are anti-Semites themselves, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that. I mean, the hypocrisy is ridiculous. <laughs> We're against Netanyahu, not because he's Jewish, but because he's an exploiter, an oppressor. I mean, uh, you know, it's not that complicated, right? But of course, they want to confuse people and lump us in with, uh, with a group like Hamas. And it's all, ultimately, it's a, it's a cheap attempt to use the poison of identity politics to undermine class unity and to undermine the left and to make the left turn against itself. And in Bellingham, Washington, other groups have been, you know, basically have been, they try, the administration is trying to turn them against us for defending the idea of intifada until victory.
So we, what we have to do, we have to stand firm and we have to point our finger directly, confidently, because we're right. History's on our side, everybody. We have to point at the, those who are really responsible for this new nightmare, for this new Nakba. And that's the imperialists and their, their, their lackeys in, in the Middle East and around the world. The collective punishment of hundreds of thousands of defenseless civilians, as far as I know, that's a war crime, right? According to bourgeois international law, right? It's a war crime by any definition, and yet there are no consequences uh, for this when it comes to Israel doing it with the support of U.S. imperialism. Now, <clears throat> Israel claims that it doesn't deal with terrorists. Our friend George Bush used to say, we don't negotiate with terrorists, we don't deal. But the origins of the state of Israel actually involved blatant acts of terrorism. For example, the blowing up of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946, where Zionist militants killed 91 British, Palestinian, and, and, and Jewish people themselves. Uh, or the terrorist attacks of groups like the Stern Gang, who assassinated a top British official in Cairo in 1944. Or the Deir Yassin massacre of 1948, where it's reported that Palestinian babies were not just killed, but, but roasted alive in ovens. And the Zionists were laughing about this. And now they talk about you know, poor little baby. I mean, you know, it's just the hypocrisy is crazy. Or the fact that Yitzhak Rabin, who was the sitting Israeli prime minister at the time, was assassinated while prime minister, not by Palestinians, but by a Jewish extremist back in 1995 for not being hard enough against the Palestinians, basically. And let's definitely not forget that Hamas itself was originally backed and supported and formed by the Mossad, by the Israeli secret services, you know? This is not a conspiracy theory. It's been openly confirmed by several top Israeli officials. And they did this specifically to cut across the rise of secular and even socialist and communist tendencies among the Palestinian youth in, in the 1960s, 70s, and, uh, and 80s as a way of dividing people along religious lines instead of having them unite along class lines. <clears throat> in 2009, Avner Cohen, he's a former Israeli religious affairs official who worked in Gaza for about 20 years, he said to the Wall Street Journal, I think they're a fairly reputable bourgeois source of information, said, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. I suggest focusing our efforts on finding ways to break up this monster before this reality jumps in our face. And as recently as 2019, just a few years ago, Netanyahu at a, at a Likud, at, at, a, at a, a conference, a convention of his own party, was bragging about how they were giving money to Hamas to keep the Palestinians divided and joking about it, right? So I think maybe the best way to explain what happened on October 7th is that this was blowback, just like the U.S. funded what would become the Taliban, which, which ended up carrying out the September 11th attacks in uh, 2001, <clears throat> um, this is blowback for the imperialist policies themselves to try to cut across united class struggle. And the point of all this is to say that October 7th didn't come out of the blue. It didn't happen in a vacuum, like someone said earlier today. And so it's communist, this, this terrible situation, it's, it's been, I mean, how many of you have been a little stressed by, by the news, extra stressed, as if it wasn't stressful enough the last few weeks? It provides us with an opportunity to really deepen our understanding of history, of theory, and ultimately of practice. Not in the abstract, not for our just own intellectual gratification, but to be better prepared to intervene in, influence, and eventually fundamentally change the course of history. 
And in order to do that, we have to start by putting things into context. Uh, and of course, that takes a, a little bit of history. <clears throat> and I think everyone here, again, easy, easy crowd, but I think we'll all agree that you can't square the circle. It's impossible to find a solution within the limits of historic Palestine or within the limits of the capitalist system. Now, although three major world religions claim those lands as important for their, for their, 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 their beliefs, we don't need to go back 2,000 years, 3,000 years. We don't need to go back to antiquity to find the roots of this mess. We can start by going back just over 100 years ago to the late 19th century. Now, the Ottoman Empire, <clears throat> which had ruled by then for about 600 years in that region, dominated or controlled the region, which uh, uh, known as Palestine. And in 1878, in the late uh, 19th century, the population of Palestine was 87% Muslim, 10% Christian, and just 3% Jewish, although the population of Jerusalem was more or less equally divided between uh, those religious groups. The language they spoke was Arabic. Everybody spoke Arabic. That makes, makes sense. And pretty much everybody more or less got along. I mean, uh, obviously there might have been this or that friction, but generally uh, everyone got along. But this was the era of the rise of capitalism of the, uh, as a world power, and along with it, the rise of bourgeois nationalism among nations both big, like Germany, uh, France, uh, you know, places like that, and, and smaller, smaller nations. And this is especially clear in places like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which like the Tsarist Empire in Russia at the time, where, where like a mini prison house of nations with all these different national groups uh, oppressed by, by the central power. Now, Jewish people had lived across Europe for centuries. I mean, you know, th thousands of years. But they had been largely segregated. They were victims of repeated waves of racism, of murderous uh, pogroms, especially in Eastern Europe and, and in Russia, but also in places like Spain and France uh, and elsewhere. And after working for decades towards integration, towards the integration of Jewish people into the dominant, uh, uh, you know, nations, uh, they, they, there was a series of really vicious pogroms in the early 1880s, and that was kind of a tipping point. It was the last straw, and a, and a group of Jewish intellectuals decided that separation from the dominant nations and emigration, ultimately, to get the hell out of there, was, was the only way forward. And this gave rise to Zionism. This is the origins of Zionism, which is a kind of Jewish nationalism, even though the Jews as a people were scattered all over the place. They weren't concentrated in one uh, you know, you know, one clear geographic area, but in cities and countries and continents all around the world. And most Zionists at that time, they were secular Jews. They liked the idea, given everything that was going on, of, of a place where, you know, a, a safe place for Jewish people. You know, they saw Israel as a place, as a state for Jews versus it being a Jewish state, which is what Israel has become. Um, and Theodor Herzl is known as the father of Zionism. And he eventually and others, they, they looked at historic Palestine as the place where uh, Jewish people around the world should go and, and coalesce. <clears throat> but even as far back as 1895, this is, you know, decades before the founding of Israel, he recognized that there could be no Jewish state there without the expropriation and expulsion of the Palestinians. He said... However, we must expropriate gently. Uh, we, shall try, we shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries, i.e. all the countries that surround uh, Palestine. Uh, um, both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. So 
kick them out, but do it as, ni- as nicely and quietly as possible. But this settlement strategy, this, this, this uh, concerted effort to displace the Palestinians, sometimes by buying their land fair and square on the market, uh, other times by massacring civilians and kicking them out, uh, it continues to this day, as we'll see. Now, the idea that was, that was sold to Jewish people who were fleeing persecution was that this was a land without a people for a people without a land. But that was obviously a lie. Uh, you know, there's people living there uh, for tens of thousands of years. I think they've found Homo habilis fossils from 1.5 million years ago. I mean, it's not like it was just an uninhabited desert. It's one of the cradles of civilization uh, in, in world history. I mean, it's like saying uh, that, uh, you know, the United States was a land without a people uh, before the Europeans came. And we know, of course, how that, how that played out. <clears throat> now, nationalism... It's a very, uh, it's a slippery slope. Even the nationalism of a, of a very legitimately oppressed people, like the Jews, can morph very quickly into becoming racism, outright racism. This poison can turn into racism against other people. And it really is an irony, an irony of history that one of the most oppressed and persecuted people in history, a people with a proud tradition going back thousands of years of resistance and of uprisings themselves, have joined the ranks now of becoming some of the worst oppressors and persecutors. Obviously, not, not all Jewish people uh, fall into that category, but, but, but this is where this, this dream of Zionism led to. Now, they did look into other options. They looked at maybe moving to Uganda or maybe moving to Argentina. Uh, or there was in the 1930s, the, the Stalinist Soviet Union created a sort of a Jewish autonomous uh, uh, region in way eastern Siberia, not a very great place to settle, uh, called uh, Birobijan. Uh, and so that was a place where they could have gone, but, but obviously uh, they decided that they were going to go to the Holy Land, obviously for for, uh, for historic reasons. And with the rise of fascism in Europe, this migration accelerated, uh, understandably. Uh, and, uh, but, this, but the cynicism of the Zionists really, again, knows no bounds. Uh, in December of 1938, this is about one month after the Kristall, the Kristallnacht in, in, in Nazi Germany, which was a pogrom against, against Jews. One month later, David Ben-Gurion, who had become the first prime minister of Israel, he said, if I knew it was possible to save all the Jewish children of Germany by their transfer to England, and only half of them by transferring them to Israel, I would choose the latter, because we are faced not only with the accounting of these children, but also with the historical accounting of the Jewish people. So, so much for poor Jewish babies. He'd rather have half of them killed by staying in Germany and, uh, or, or by moving to Israel, then saving all of them if they could go somewhere that was relatively safe at that time uh, in Britain. <clears throat> but first, let's go back to World War I, because this is where things really start to, uh, start to, to come together. Uh, the British, who were uh, you know, one of the imperialist powers, they got the support of the Arabs of Mecca, in, in what is today Saudi Arabia, to help fight against the Ottoman Empire, which controlled that region. Uh, and they were, uh, the Ottomans were one of the central powers along with Austria-Hungary and, and Germany. And in exchange of the support of the Arabs in Mecca, uh, they, were gonna, they were gonna give them some chunks of the Middle East. But, of course, in a secret agreement with the French, the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement, uh, which, by the way, was only made public after the Bolsheviks came to power and said, look, Look what these assholes have been doing behind our backs. The French and the British, 
decided that they were going to divide up the former Ottoman Empire uh, into their own zones of control. The British were going to get Palestine, Jordan, and southern Iraq. And the French would get southeast Turkey, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. So if you wonder why some people in uh, Lebanon speak French, it's because of this. If you wonder for, Because of the imperialists who went, who went into these places to divide it up for themselves. <clears throat> now, after the war ended, Palestine was basically a British colony. But they'd also promised some of these lands to the Zionists. Because of racism in Britain, they wanted to get the Jews out of Britain and, 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 and put them somewhere else. And so in 1917, with the Balfour Declaration, they, they announced a plan to establish a national home for the Jews to be located in Palestine. <clears throat> but as we've seen, Palestine was all already occupied by a mix of, of different peoples. Uh, and the Jewish population in 1918 was only 6% in, in, in that region. But as thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people started to transfer there, they raised money, they lobbied governments to, to provide ships and stuff like that. By 1935, they made up about 27% of the population. <clears throat> and by 1947, driven by what happened during World War II, it was up to about 33% uh, of the population was Jewish, but that's still not a majority. So in a classic divide and move rule, the British imperialists, they came up with a plan to partition uh, you know, this region, which is called the Levant, uh, because it's only by turning ordinary people against each other that, that these imperialists can keep, you know, keep control over us, basically. And they've done this all over the world. They did the exact same thing in, uh, in India, as I'll mention in a second. And basically, in, in 1937, they had a thing called the Peel Report, where they recommended partitioning. I mean, if you look, have you seen the lines in Africa or in the Middle East? They're really straight. Have you ever looked at the geography of those places, I mean, they, they literally are like, oh, here, put a ruler on there, and okay, these people live here, these people live there. I mean, it, it, it really is uh, disgusting. But they, they decided to give 20% of Palestine to, to, the, to the Jews, even though they were, uh, you know, relatively, they, were, they, they weren't that, uh, the, the amount of land that they owned at that time wasn't anywhere near 20%, yet they were going to get 20%. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, they did this in India, exact same thing, in 1947, the partition of India. But in that case, it was uh, Hindus against Sikhs, against, against Muslims, and you led to about a million people being killed in, in, in that part of the world. Uh, and, and that's another sore spot in the world today, the dividing line between in India and Pakistan. Um, and so it led to, and, and India there, I mean, the massive ethnic cleansing is the legacy of, of the imperialist powers all around the world. Of course, the Palestinians in 1937, they objected to, you know, having a bunch of them deported, having a bunch of the land taken. So they rose up and there was an uprising and it was put down brutally by the British, along with Zionist militias, who at that time were on their side. But right after this uprising was put down was about the beginning of World War II, and the British didn't want any more uh, you know, instability with the, with the, with the Arabs, <clears throat> those rest of Arabs, you know, the restless Arabs. You know? so, they, so then they restricted Jewish immigration from Britain because they didn't want to piss people off, precisely at the time that the Holocaust was happening and six million Jewish people were, were killed by, by the Nazis. <clears throat> so then the Zionists actually turned against the British and were fighting against them. So the whole thing is just, just a mess. By 1947, things have got, had gotten so out of hand that they handed control of Palestine. The British gave up Palestine and they gave it to this thing called the United Nations, which emerged after World War II. <clears throat> now the United Nations 
is a is a is an organization that gives humanitarian cover to imperialism. And it was actually the United Nations who proposed what they call the two-state solution, which is basically partition, which we've just been talking about. So we should have zero illusions in the United Nations. They pass all kinds of resolutions. They have no, uh, no, no power to enforce any of these things. And uh, because ultimately it's the big powers, the big imperialist powers that call the shots in, in world economy and world politics. <clears throat> so the UN's plan, the infamous Resolution 181, proposed dividing Palestine into two uh, and, and, and into two different entities, right? Now, the Americans emerged from World War II as, as the, the strongest imperialist power, and they wanted a foothold in, in the Middle East, so they decided that they would back the Zionists because the Zionists had been, you know, had turned against the British. Uh, again, it's, it, 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 was, it was quite a mess, but this, this um, <clears throat> the state that they proposed, or the two states, was going to be, uh, again, a, a total mess. The Arab state was going to be a non-contiguous uh, state divided into no fewer than than four different chunks, uh, including the capital of Jerusalem, which was to be a special zone uh, right in the middle of, of, of one of the Arab statelets. I mean, so similar to Berlin, where it's just right in the middle of... I mean, it's just a, a complete mess. Uh, and they were supposed to share roads. Two different countries, two different nations. They were supposed to have the same roads, the same ports, and a common currency. You know, what kind of a solution is that? That's, that's a solution that an imperialist or a capitalist would come up with. <clears throat> and to add insult to injury, in that partition plan, 55% of the land now is to go to the Jews and only 45% to the majority population uh, Arabs. So, <clears throat> in 1948, the Zionist militias who were backed by U.S. imperialism, they started attacking Palestinian villages to drive people off the land. Uh, it was a land grab, basically. They wanted to expand the borders beyond what the U.N. had already more or less authorized because they understood that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And on May 14th, uh, 1948, the Zionists declared the establishment of the State of Israel. It was immediately recognized by the U.S. and by the USSR, who had come to, to their own Sykes-Picot-like agreement at the end of World War II for dividing the world up into to spheres of influence. And by, uh, by 1949, when the fighting stopped uh, during, during this, um, the, 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 Jewish, the, the Jewish state, the new Israel state, it controlled 78% of historic Palestine, and those lines are known as the Green Line. If you ever heard of the Green Line, it's the, it's the borders that were established by the armistice of 1949. <clears throat> so May 15th, the day after the declaration of the, of the State of Israel, is known as the Nakba, the catastrophe. That's the, the term that Arab, the Palestinians give to, to this catastrophe. And it was a catastrophe. About 530 Palestinian villages and cities were destroyed. About 15,000 Palestinians were killed. Uh, in a series of mass atrocities. 700 to 750,000 Palestinians were forcefully removed from their lands. Overnight, they were forced to leave their homes. 39% went to the West Bank, which was ostensibly Palestinian. 10% ended in, up in Jordan, in a different country altogether. 26% went to the Gaza Strip, which at the time was occupied by Egypt. 14% uh, went north to Lebanon. 10% uh, went into the Golan area of Syria, and about 1% went into Egypt. So this was ethnic cleansing on, on an incredible scale. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed so that people couldn't come back to them. Or the nicer ones, I imagine, were simply occupied by, 
by Jewish settlers as far back as 1948. <clears throat> now, most of the Palestinians don't have citizen right, rights in the countries where they've been living their entire lives. So if you're in a refugee camp in, uh, in Jordan, you, you're not Jordanian, you can't travel as a Jordanian, you're, just, you're, like, you're like a person without a country. Um, and so three generations of Palestinians have lived like that and been dependent on the United Nations, their friends in the United Nations, who helped cause all of this for food or, or anything else like that. So what kind of existence is that? You know, that 700,000 uh, was equivalent to about 80% of the Arab population. So to put that into U.S. context, that's as if 266 million Americans, 80% of Americans, were forced to live in squalid refugee camps in the border of Mexico and Canada for, for generations. I mean, that's the, the, the scale of what they did to this people. And uh, to, you know, they, they've recently opened up the archives and they've discovered that the, the Zionists, they used biological weapons, chemical weapons against the Palestinians. And to this day, Israel does not uh, abide by internationally recognized agreements on the use of chemical weapons. Uh, I mean, th that's the scale of what they did to that population. And of course, the Nakba was just the beginning. <clears throat> you then had the Suez crisis and war in 1956. And then in 1967, this is a really important one, you have the Six-Day War uh, between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And during that war, <clears throat> the Arab countries basically invaded Israel, but they really weren't very well organized. And uh, the Israelis fought back very effectively, so effectively, that they took over Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, they took over the Golan Heights in Syria, and they took over the rest of what remained of Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza. <clears throat> and those, those areas have been basically, you know, West Bank and Gaza have been occupied either directly or indirectly ever since. So long story short, more wars, more agreements, more imperialist maneuvering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's been little wars, there have been big wars, uh, there's been acts of individual terrorism by groups like the PLO, uh, by Hamas, there's been assassinations and state terrorism by Israel. And, uh, you know, the Palestinians have, have just been, you know, living with arbitrary arrests, illegal settlements, their homes are bulldozed, uh, there's, there's checkpoints, there's missile strikes. Uh, it, it's basically, I mean, it's even worse than, than being a black person in a lot of cities in this country, in a lot of neighborhoods. And that's been their lives uh, for decades and decades. Now, historically, when there's a, a, a mass upsurge of class struggle, you have a dramatic drop in... Uh, you know, tendencies towards individual terrorism. But when mass movements are defeated, you can have people who are, you know, despairing and they can turn to those kinds of methods. So I think it's very clearly the most important event since 1948 was the first Intifada, which we talked a little bit about earlier. <clears throat> now, the first Intifada, it lasted from 1987 to 1992, and it truly was a mass struggle. It's not a suicide bomber. It's not anything. It's a mass struggle. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. There's general strikes, roadblocks, civil disobedience, tax strikes. They, they wouldn't even uh, respect the opening hours for shops that the Israelis imposed on them. They're like, it's my shop. I'm not going to I'm not going to open it. Uh, Israeli patrols were ambushed by kids throwing rocks and with slingshots and, and burning tires. It really was a, a David versus Goliath kind of struggle. And I remember as a little kid seeing this on on the TV and wondering, wow, what the hell is I mean, you little kids with slingshots going up against tanks. I mean, 
it was it was amazing, and they got a lot of a lot of sympathy. Popular committees started to pop up uh, in uh, <clears throat> in in the Palestinian areas, and you had measures being taken, like you saw in the Paris Commune of 1871. And if you haven't studied the Paris Commune, definitely check that out. So you had committees that were. They were, they were basically, they morphed into organs of popular control. They offered basic health care. They distributed food and other supplies during strikes. They set up self-defense groups to guard the neighborhoods. Uh, they reorganized the education system after the authorities shut them down. They capped rents and other, other, other prices. And they organized the population against hoarding, against price gouging. Uh, they even developed small-scale subsistence farming and boycotted Israeli products uh, to try to feed themselves. They set up popular tribunals to deal with criminal activity, uh, with informants and other kinds of disputes. So it really was the beginnings of a kind of a popular democracy. Uh, and women played a huge role in coordinating all of this. And, and this really pointed the way forward for uh, the misery of the Palestinians. And it was a real threat for people, for the ruling class across the Middle East. But of course, as we discussed in the question of uh, Germany, there was a lack of real revolutionary leadership. And in the end, a rotten compromise was negotiated behind the backs of the Palestinian people, which they call the Oslo Accords, which they're talking about these, these days. And basically, according to the Oslo Accords, Israel agreed to partially withdraw from the occupied territories. And a sort of semi-state, the Palestinian Authority, was going to be created. And in return for that, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, agreed to recognize Israel and basically legitimize all the stolen land. And they gave up on this demand for the right of return, which has historically been super important, the right to return to the homes and lands that were taken from you back in, in 1948. <clears throat> but very little was actually promised to the Palestinians. They were supposed to just work towards... Uh, uh, you know, the restoration of, of, uh, of the 1967 borders. Um, so Palestine, though, wasn't an, it's, you know, the Palestinian Authority, not an independent uh, thing. It has a customs union with Israel. It doesn't even have its own currency. They have to use the Israeli shekel. Uh, but what did happen is that the, a Palestinian police force was created to police the Palestinians on behalf of the Israelis. So now you have Palestinians uh, policing Palestinians, uh, although Israel controlled the airspace, it controlled the national borders, and it reserved the right to intervene militarily whenever it wanted to. So what kind of a, what kind of a country, what kind of a nation, what kind of independence is that? And of course, things have only gotten worse since then for the Palestinians. Thousands more have been killed. Uh, a, a ton of land has been stolen. Uh, these settlers, they go in, they, they cut down the olive groves, they shoot their cattle, they, they shoot the people if they, if they get too uppity. I mean, it's, it, it's really uh, disgusting. And no wonder some people have fallen into despair and they've turned towards Islamic fundamentalism. They've turned towards uh, you know, suicide bombings and terrorist attacks and stuff like that. Um, unemployment is insane. I mean, uh, before the recent events, unemployment in Gaza was 45%. Uh, what's it in the U.S., like six, five? I don't even, I mean, it's, you know, 45%. And among the youth, it was even higher, keeping in mind that half of the population of Palestine is under the year, is 18 years or, or younger. I mean, it's a super young population. So when we say they're, they're bombing kids, I mean, it's literally uh, what's happening. Now, the Palestinian Authority, uh, so-called authority, had no authority, very quickly lost its authority. Uh, it's uh, totally corrupt. Like I said, it's doing the, the dirty work for, for, the, uh, for the Israelis. And uh, eventually, <clears throat> in 2005, 
Uh, Israel decides to, to leave completely from, from Gaza, and they hold legislative elections, municipal elections, which uh, Hamas wins. Hamas is not just a terrorist organization, it's also a political uh, party, and Hamas won against the Palestinian Authority. But of course, the great defenders of democracy, Israel and the EU and the United States, they wouldn't recognize these elections because, of course, the people they, they didn't want to win won. And so they backed uh, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah and told them not to recognize it. And you end up with civil war in Palestine, which ends up with Hamas in power in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority keeping power and Fatah keeping power in the West Bank. So a complete, a complete <clears throat> disaster. Uh, since then, or you know, these last few years, those those settlements have have continued into what we're supposed to be, according to the UN, Palestinian lands. Now, as it happens, there's 700,000 Jewish settlers living illegally in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, which are supposed to be Palestinian, <clears throat> and. Uh, and there's pogroms still against Palestinian villages of hundreds of, of, uh, of uh, you know, the Zionist thugs going in and beating people up and, and driving them out of their homes and stuff like that. And, and these settlers, they behave with impunity. They, 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 you know, the government looks the other way, and actually the Netanyahu government has been encouraging them. Uh, since October 7th, <clears throat> over, I mean, this is probably outdated, but over 120 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank. Now, Hamas is not in power in, in the West Bank, and yet you still have dozens and dozens of Palestinians being, being killed over there. And so why is that happening? It's because Israel is taking advantage of this situation to drive even more people out. And so anybody's attempt to establish a two-state solution would, would basically, the Palestinian territories they, territories, they look like Swiss cheese now. They're just dotted all over with these armed little uh, gated community uh, settlements. And so the only kind of state that you could have would be where the Palestinians are, are, are basically warehoused in little ghettos or little reservations surrounded by, by, by a hostile Zionist population. That, 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 so basically, they want to make it impossible for the Palestinians to have their state. And in other words, they might as well just pack up and go somewhere else, right? Get the hell out of there so that the Israelis can control everything. Now, <clears throat> I know you're not all from Arizona, but do you think people from Arizona or from Texas, are they going to let people from another state come and drive them out of their homes, homes at gunpoint and, uh, and, and take their homes and kill their kids? I mean, do you think any American would stand for that? So, of course, these people are, are fighting back. Uh, and, and then people are still surprised after all this history that something like October 7th could happen. You know, the, the Palestinians have been blocked for three quarters of a century on every front. They've tried the UN, they've tried lawsuits, they've tried protests, peaceful protests, they've tried suicide bombings, they've tried everything legally, illegally, politically, and they're blocked. And a lot, obviously, a lot of them feel like they have no alternative but to do something really dramatic. And really, the motto of ordinary Palestinians is the same as the one that Americans had when this country was a colony of Britain, which was basically give me liberty or give me death. I mean, it's, it's you know, and we think that's great when, uh, when, you know, Virginians and whoever said that, but when the Palestinians feel like that, they're terrorists and, and, and animals and so on. <clears throat> now, we don't support individual terrorism. It's ineffective. It turns, I mean, the Israeli population, they want to get rid of Netanyahu. That attack turned them toward supporting Netanyahu, at least temporarily. September 11th, you know, George W. Bush was very unpopular already. September 11th, 
ended up, he ended up with like 91% approval rating after that. So individual terrorism, it, it, it serves to divide the class. We're in favor of mass resistance, you know? That's why the Intifada is such, a, such, a, such an inspiration. So I ask you, knowing all of this, whose side would you take when you look at history? Would you take the side of Spartacus, the gladiator, or of the slave owners who made these people fight each other for entertainment, and after they defeated them, crucified thousands of them along the Appian Way as a lesson to slaves that you shouldn't rise up against your masters. So who would you side with, Spartacus or not, Karmas? Spartacus! Yeah. And would you take the side of Nat Turner? You heard of Nat Turner? Slave, the biggest slave rebellion in Virginia? Or of the slave owners who skinned him a lot, maybe not a lot, but they killed him, cut his head off, quartered him, and skinned him, and sent chunks of him to different plantations as a warning to other slaves. So would you support Nat Turner or the slave owners? Nat Turner! And one of my very favorites, comment over here with the t-shirt, would you take the side of John Brown or the state of Virginia that hanged him and the Confederacy that wanted him killed for his failed raid at Harper's Ferry? John Brown, as we'd say in Latin America, John Brown presente, right? John Brown, he's still, he's still with us. <clears throat> so comrades, raise your hands if you've ever been told that the question of Israel-Palestine is complicated. Is it? I don't think it's that complicated, you know? I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. It's only complicated if you don't have a class approach, if you have a wishy-washy, petty bourgeois approach. It's only complicated if you're an apologist for capitalism, if you limit yourselves to solution within the borders of Palestine, and if you, uh, you limit yourself to solutions within the limits of crisis-ridden capitalism. And although some reactionaries on both sides of this debate would say that it's a religious question, it's not about that at all. This isn't a debate about theology. This isn't about who the true prophet of God is. It's about land. It's always been about land. It's about power. It's about the exploitation of labor and scarce natural resources. And in the final analysis, as, as Lenin would say, it's a, it's a class question, and it's a question of bread. Is there enough bread to go around for everybody? Is there enough jobs, healthcare, education for everybody to go around? Yes, there is enough to go around, but not on the basis of the market and not on the basis of the bourgeois nation state. Capitalism can't provide those things for us. It divides us, it rules us, and it makes us hate each other to fight over crumbs uh, from, from, a, from a pool of social wealth that is really you know, unimaginable nowadays. If you think about how much wealth the working class creates. Now, for millions of Palestinians, the Nakba, it never ended. Uh, and yet, for thousands, hundreds of thousands of these Israeli settlers, these Zionist settlers, the Nakba wasn't enough. That's, that's the contradiction. So the way forward isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. There's no reformist road out of, out of the situation. International pressure. Look at the, the international pressure. Ceasefire. Temper, I mean, look where that's leading. Meanwhile, Israel is bombing, bombing day in and day out, right? Peace deals. We've seen they've had tons of peace deals. Peace deals don't lead to anything on the basis of capitalism. The Palestinian masses can rely only on their own strength, supported by the solidarity of the, of the entire world working class. And that's why we say that 
uh, an uprising throughout the whole of Palestine, uh, in all the refugee camps, basing itself first and foremost on the revolutionary youth, if mobilized around the socialist program, this would spread so quickly throughout the region, across all those artificial borders that were uh, you know, drawn with, with rulers, and all those uh, other Arabs who were non-Palestinian, who, who burned with indignation at their own conditions of life and, and, and at what's happening to their class brothers and sisters. <clears throat> this all, to seeing that on a class basis, would start to break down the national unity of, uh, of Israelis. It would lead to a, a proletarian version of divide and conquer of the Israeli population along class lines. But thankfully, the ruling class is so small, it wouldn't take very much for a united working class to conquer these people. The reactionary Zionist ruling class, it has to be expropriated. The land, the monopolies, they have to be nationalized and put under control of, of, of the working class. In other words, we need a socialist revolution. Only a regime of workers' democracy can end this occupation. It can resolve the land question and respect the democratic rights of everybody, of Jews, Arabs, Coptic Christians, everybody in that region. <clears throat> Um, and, and look, uh, I, you know, we talk about a, lot of, a lot about the Palestinians, but this applies to the Jewish population as well, for ordinary Jewish people. As a result of Israel's attack on Gaza, anti-Semitism is now reaching record highs. So how, 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 does, you know, how, how does this attack, how does this make Jewish people safer in the world? You saw maybe what happened in Dagestan, where you know, a crowd of people went to, to of, of, of you know, fundamentalist Muslims wanted to drag the Israelis off, their, off the plane. You know? I mean, th this kind of hatred is the result of what people like Netanyahu were doing. Now, a century ago, the Jewish people were searching for a home, and they absolutely were an oppressed people. But is the solution to steal other people's land just because you want land? That's obviously not it. There's plenty of land in the world. There's good land. There's good jobs. There's things to be done. There's enough for everybody to have a productive, dignified and, and, and frankly a happy life but again not under capitalism as Trotsky explained a, a decade before the founding of Israel the Jewish question is indissolubly bound up with the complete emancipation of humanity as he put it the Zionist efforts to carve out a nation state for Jews in Palestine on a capitalist basis would be a bloody trap and that's exactly, I mean, you talk about how prescient Trotsky is. I mean, that, that, that's exactly what's happened. <clears throat> you know, after uh, Israel captured Gaza in the Six-Day War, the Prime Minister, uh, Levi Eshkol, he said that Gaza would be a bone stuck in our throats. They don't even want this, this little thing. It's a bone stuck in their throats. Even they understand that there can't be any kind of peace on, on this basis. Now, Marx wrote famously that capital comes dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. And you can say the same thing about the state of Israel. Since its inception, it's been based on the bloody suppression of the local population. It wasn't just, you know, the, the Israel wasn't just hanging out in Palestine uh, until these mean old Arabs decided to come after it for religious reasons. Regions, uh, reasons. I think we've given very briefly the history of, of how that thing came, came to be. <clears throat> and that's why only by smashing imperialism and capitalism throughout the region can we get rid of this poison of Zionism. And I would add that that goes for the, I mean, uh, I don't know who's more disgusting, the, the Zionist regime or the Saudi regime uh, as well. Th those, those guys, the Gulf states, those, those uh, folks, they all need to get their heads chopped off too, I think. <clears throat> But 
a scimitar guillotine instead of a guillotine for those guys, you know. Uh, and, uh, but, I mean, the key countries, though, in this region, it really comes down to the working class, right? It comes down to the big powers in that region. That's Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. Those are big economies, huge working classes with, with really... Uh, powerful class struggle, even communist traditions in all of those countries. And, uh, you know, a revolution in any of those countries would, again, spread very quickly and would lay the basis for a socialist federation of the Middle East where you could have full autonomy, safety, and prosperity for all the people of whatever religion or whatever background they come from. That's the only way to harness the vast resources of that world in order to, of that part of the world, in order to, 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 to get rid of this misery. But it can't happen on the basis of capitalism. So what can we do here? Yeah, socialist revolution in Iran. You know, that, that's, that's not under our control. That's up to the Iranian working class or in Turkey or, or Egypt or wherever. <clears throat> a lot of people feel helpless, although there's a lot of protests going on. I think you'll find that people are angry. They want to scream, but they still feel ultimately helpless. But they're not helpless. There's a lot that we can do here. We have to explain that we're not helpless if we are united as a class because the struggle of the Palestinian people is also our struggle in unity, in worldwide unity of the class, there's strength. <clears throat> so mass strikes and movements like that that can topple those kinds of governments, uh, the, 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 that's what we're fighting for. I mean, we, like I said, we saw a little bit of what this could look like during the George Floyd movement. So we have to patiently explain the vast potential of, of the working class in this country to stop that. Now, dock workers can shut down the ports and prevent the shipment of arms. Just today, I think, there was a protest in the port of Oakland in California that stopped the shipment of arms. Now, that was a protest that kind of just gummed things up. All the better if the, you know, the, the dock workers on the whole West Coast and on the whole East Coast, they themselves you know, flex their muscles and decide we're not, gonna, we're not gonna enable this anymore. But that just gives a glimpse of the kind of power. Factory workers could refuse to produce weapons. You've seen this in other countries uh, throughout history. Communications and media workers, uh, social media engineers, they can shut down the, the lies, you know? They can shut down the lie factories that, that basically put forward this, this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, <clears throat> sanitized version of what's really going on there. So the bottom line is to stop these airstrikes, we need general strikes. But of course, that's not something that you just conjure up and call in the abstract. <clears throat> but we have to prepare the ground for that and lay the seeds for that, plant the vision of how we as a class can, can really bring this to an end. And that's why we have to fight to break the workers and the unions from both the Democrats and the Republicans. They're entirely complicit in this disaster. That's why we fight for a mass communist party, uh, a party that truly represents the working class majority that can end that disgusting two-party system once and for all. On a smaller scale, we can organize events like this. We can explain the real history in our classrooms, in our, in our, in our schools, you know, Raise your hand in class and explain you know, the facts. We're not making anything up. This is all verifiable. Explain what's really going on. Organize solidarity meetings. Organize public rallies. Uh, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the movement inevitably starts to die down a bit, maybe we'll have to be the ones to call solidarity rallies, because I think this is going to drag on for quite a, for quite a while. <clears throat> Ultimately, if we want to keep U.S. hands, we say hands off Venezuela, we say hands off Cuba, whatever. If we want to keep U.S. hands off Palestine or Venezuela or Cuba or wherever, then we have to make sure that the hands that are in power are working class hands and not the hands of the capitalists and the imperialists. That's our duty, our responsibility here in this, in this country. <clears throat> but of course, as lots of comments have said, 
That doesn't happen overnight. We have to build the forces of Marxism, the forces of revolutionary communism, and that's the IMT. Because every day that capitalism remains in power is another day of living hell for the people, not just in Palestine, but in Congo, or Sudan, or Sri Lanka, or El Salvador, or right here in this, in this country, in the richest country on earth. That's the connection we need to make. That's the connection between communism and what's going on in Palestine. People say, oh, what's the, what, why do you want to talk about socialism in Palestine? What's that got to do? It's got everything to do with what's going on in, in Palestine. This is the legacy of imperialism and the system. Imperialism cannot abolish itself. And so <clears throat> only the working class, once it rises up, can end this cancer once and for all. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you study, watch Marxist.com. I know a lot of, we've got a lot of newer comments, but look at what happened during the Arab Spring or during, in, during the Venezuelan Revolution or recently in places like Sudan or Sri Lanka. That's what a revolution looks like. And that stuff is happening today. But without the leadership, revolutions happen, but revolutions cannot be victorious. So... <clears throat> Building the leadership, that's what we need. That's our task. We need to raise the, the horizons of our, of our comrades, of our contacts, of people that we talk, at, talk to at demonstrations, that we need a worldwide intifada. We should take inspiration from the heroism uh, and the resistance and the resiliency of the Palestinian people. Uh, again, literally kids fighting tanks with slingshots. We should be proud to stand firm when we're put under pressure for our views. We're here fighting against the biggest bullies on the planet, and we can only do that with cohesion politically, with ideas, and with revolutionary commitment. As we've said before, the IMT, we're not looking just for, for you know, anti-capitalists. We're not just looking for people even that consider themselves communists. We're looking for class fighters who want to join a group that is actively fighting for communism, fighting for the socialist revolution in our lifetime. And the bitter truth is that things are going to get a lot uglier in this world before they get better. But at the end of this nightmarish tunnel, things aren't going to just be better. It's going to be an entirely different world, the very opposite of hell. It's going to be a genuine paradise on earth, a world of super abundance for every single human living on the planet. And that, comrades, is why we say, Intifada until victory. Intifada until victory.